Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A troubled Choctaw woman draws on the power of her ancestors as she comes to grips with her superhuman abilities in the new Marvel series Echo. The production has a host of Native talent, including a Menominee actress who's also deaf. We'll hear from her and others from the show today. We'll also talk about the development of the Native comic book character from the printed page to the small screen. We're exploring the show Echo that just became available on Disney Plus and Hulu. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. At a Shiprock chapter meeting on the Navajo Nation this week, community members put forward a resolution that calls for independent oversight of cleanup efforts after an oil spill north of Shiprock, New Mexico. Chris Clements with KSJD has more. Residents held a meeting on Saturday to discuss the ramifications of the spill and the community-drafted resolution, which also requests an investigation into the cause of the incident by both the U.S. EPA and the New Mexico Environment Department. Last month, a pipeline that transports crude oil from New Mexico to Aneth, Utah, was breached by a grading truck on agricultural land. The pipeline is operated by a subsidiary of Navajo Nation Oil and Gas, which is a tribal enterprise. Beverly Maxwell and other Navajo residents who live near the spill are frustrated with what they describe as a lack of communication from local and national tribal authorities about details of the still ongoing cleanup. You know, as I look out the window now, there goes a dump truck full of contaminated soil going to drop it off at the at the staging area of that big old contamination pile. And uh, it's not done. A press release on December 20th from the Office of the President of the Navajo Nation said that the spill was quickly contained and that out of the 1,500 barrels of oil spilled, 800 have been recovered, while 700 have soaked into the soil along the flow path. I'm Chris Clements. Members of the Biden administration are urging Congress to fully fund the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, or WIC, for 2024. WIC is an important program for American Indians and Alaska Natives. KMBA's Jill Freitas reports. WIC provides food, health care, and resources, assisting more than 6 million people across the country, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Officials are concerned a funding shortfall puts at risk nutrition security for women, infants, and children. During a press conference Thursday, director of the White House Domestic Policy Council, your attendance says there will be consequences if WIC is not funded this year. If congressional Republicans pass a budget without fully funding WIC, states will have no choice but to cut the number of people they serve. States would be forced to implement waiting lists or take other devastating measures. Two million parents and young children could be turned away from WIC by September 2024 if Congress fails to provide full funding. That is simply unacceptable. Depriving eligible families of WIC would worsen hunger and hardship. No one deserves that, particularly our children. Tom Vilsack is the secretary of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He says WIC participants are up 400,000 from a year ago. He says if Congress doesn't provide funding, participants would be put on a wait list and the repercussions of a funding shortfall would be catastrophic. Under program rules, waiting lists would first be implemented for non-breastfeeding postpartum women. And if that weren't enough, 
Next would be for children ages one to five years old who don't have higher risk medical issues. If that doesn't satisfy the shortfall, then the next category are pregnant and breastfeeding women and infants who do not have higher risk medical issues. But given the size of the funding shortfall, it's likely that waiting lists would stretch across all, and let me emphasize, all participating categories, affecting both new applicants and mothers, babies, and young children enrolled in the program who are up for renewal of benefits. The budget deadline is next week. The administration and a group of lawmakers are calling for an additional $1.4 billion in federal funding for the program. I'm Jill Freitas. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. More tribes are using drones from Cayuse Native Solutions to economically collect data for disaster response, aerial inspections, and more. More about drone services available at CayuseNativeSolutions.com who support this show. A historical trauma master class taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 1st at freedomlodge.org, who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Maya Lopez is a deaf amputee martial artist who battles a criminal empire and uncovers her Choctaw family legacy in the new Marvel television series Echo that's now streaming on Disney Plus and Hulu. The comic book character the show is based on is Choctaw, a fact that is an important plot line. The show has native talent behind and in front of the camera, starting with the lead actress Alakwa Cox, who's Menominee. Navajo filmmaker Sidney Freeland is the executive producer and director. It also employed a range of consultants from the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Today, we'll hear from the talent working on the show. And of course, we'll get an expert take on incorporating Choctaw culture in a Marvel comic book story. Please join us. Have you seen Echo yet? What do you think of the story or the representation of Choctaw culture on the screen? Share your comments, insights, and questions by calling one 800 9962848 From Durant, Oklahoma, we're joined by Terry Billy. She is an assistant director of the Choctaw School of Language and a consultant on Echo. She is Choctaw. Hello Terry, welcome to our show. Halito, thank you for having me on today. Halito. In Norman, Oklahoma, we have Dr. Scott Ketchum on the line. He is a Chickasaw Nation Endowed Chair in Native American Studies for East Central University. He is Choctaw. Hi, Scott. Great to have you back on the show. Halito. Yokoki. Thank you. Halito. And joining us from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, is Dr. Indigenerd, a.k.a. Dr. Lee Francis IV. He is the CEO of a tribe called Geek, and he is Laguna Pueblo. Hello, Lee. Good to have you back on the show as well. Hey, Guati. Dua, hey, brother. 
Good to hear your voice again. Leela, I, I want to ask you, I mean, all five episodes of Echo now available to stream. What's your review of the series? Does it live up to the hype? It does. I'm so excited. It's so, it's so wonderful. I'm just like overjoyed by the fact for so many reasons, but I think that, you know, it absolutely, you know, adds uh, in, in terms of the MCU adds another compelling character. Um, you know, one that is so amazing in terms of representation, I think, you know, um, aligning with some of the stuff that we saw from the comic, but then tying into these pieces of the MCU. I was a big fan when she originally emerged from Hawkeye and was very excited about the fact that there was so much energy from her character from the Hawkeye series that, you know, folks were like, wow, she's really cool. Let's give her her own series. I think that's like, was so, you know, so amazing for me. And it's just been, I mean, like, there's just so much swirling emotion. Like as a comic book fan, I love it. You know, as an indigenous, nerd, I love it. Uh, <laughs> you know, as just a person seeking native representation, I love it. it it's incredible across the board. Well, Lee, let's take a step back because not everybody is an indigenous nerd like yours. And, you know, this initial series, Hawkeye, and a little more background on the character of Echo and where she comes from and just the origin of this story for people that aren't really dialed into the Marvel Universe. Yeah, so uh, it's been 25 years. Uh, so the character first emerged in Daredevil. I want to say Daredevil number nine. Uh, not Daredevil number nine. Uh, back 1999. Uh, in in uh, Daredevil issue... Um, as sort of this, uh, you know, similar, this sort of character that was uh, sent by the Kingpin uh, as, a, as a way to, uh, as to, to get at Daredevil. Um, you know, Daredevil also being visually impaired, being blind. Uh, you know, this character is created by David Mack and Joe Quesada uh, out of Marvel um, as sort of like this counterpoint to Daredevil. Um, at the time, her particular heritage was originally Cheyenne, but got a little bit murky somewhere along, maybe a little bit Blackfeet. Some Cheyenne. This is sort of like what Marvel did. Was there was sort of some amalgam Indian type stuff, right? It was like well, this is a little bit of everything, which we all kind of are. But you know, they they you know one of the things that the producers this time around wanted to make it really specific. But back in the day when she started, so um, and then toured around in a lot of uh, you know came came back as a character in a lot of various iterations throughout the Marvel comic book universe, um, uh, showing up as an Avenger. At one point, uh, taking on the Ronin character that we see in the Hawkeye series, um, mm-hmm. and then eventually becoming the Phoenix, which is a whole thing through the X-Men, and we don't have time for that. But it's a super-powered uh, uh, universal being, and she was the embodiment of this, of this being that had this, you know, mega powers um, of the Phoenix. Like, it was, you know, okay. it happened in the sort of her last iteration. So there's your nerdiness. There's your indigenous nerdiness <laughs> for the day. Um, but she's been around really? for 25 years as a character, and it's been amazing in this last couple of years to see her make her way into the MCU, the Marvel oh. Cinematic Universe. Okay, thanks for that background, Lee. And now this newcomer, this Menominee actress, Alakwa Cox, she plays the role of Echo, a.k.a. Maya Lopez. Tell us a little bit more about her. Um, you know, has this incredible background. Uh, obviously, like, you know, Coming off of the original show or for the Hawkeye show and being able to bring in this character, um, you know, with Alakwa Cox, had the chance to interview her with a tribe called Geek um, as a deaf character, uh, as a deaf woman, um, native woman, and as, a, you know, playing a deaf character. It's such a great alignment between the two. Um, I think that's one of the things that I just think that, you know, they did such a good job of finding someone that really embodies 
the the spirit of the character, um, you know, and truly finding that. So I, I was I was thinking to myself, and one of the things that I wanted to say today and commenting was the fact that like we talk so much about representation and wanting to see ourselves um, as Native people in popular media, but I also think it's so amazing that as a deaf actor, that you know, not only do I get to see myself represented. But I get to like I get to be that character. Like I, I can see this character. Um, if I was deaf, it is so amazing. And we have, you know, relatives, and we have young people, and we have all these folks in our community um, that are deaf or hard of hearing. So I think it's it, it's so compelling, and her story is so compelling. It's amazing. Absolutely. And Lee, another interesting aspect of this character is she's kind of hard to classify. I mean, she's a superhero, but in other ways. She's an anti-hero. I mean, she's got a past. She's got some. She's got some issues, to put it lightly. So, wh- how would you classify her? Where, where does she fall into that spectrum? Because a lot of times, these superheroes—they're—they're they're like good people, right? They're like perfect embodiments of what we all should aspire to. I think that's one of the m- amazing parts. One of the things that we really see within sort of modern pop culture media is this idea that people have complicated histories. They have complicated backgrounds. They. They come from multiple spaces in terms of, of how they become heroes in many ways. Her, I think her affiliation and her heroicism is the fact that she, you know, is, you know, she's seeking revenge essentially for the murder of her father um, at the hands of Wilson, Wilson Fisk and sort of going through that. But then also this kind of life that she leads. She's an antihero in that sense. In the comics, she's, you know, she starts as an antihero and then becomes much more heroic, saving the universe, blah, blah, blah. For the nerds, right? <laughs> but I think that that is one of the things that's really incredible to see is is that they that as we come into our heroicism, that there are many ways that we find those paths, um, mm-hmm. and that one thing that the that the the shows do is really tie her back to her community and her heritage, and that is something that is an anchor point for her, something that she fights for, something that she you know exists around, and I think that that's one of the the key and important uh, takeaways. Um, in 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 the way that she's portrayed, we're definitely going to talk more about the cultural connection, the connection with language. But Lee, I want to ask you first. I mean, just what did you think of the fight sequences? <laughs> I love them. I love it that they're like. I love that they're. I I like the character being just sort of like a lot more hard edge, right? Like there's it's you know it's I mean there's some good you know it 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 aligns a little bit more with what they did with the Netflix. Marvel stuff, so the Daredevil side, the Luke Cage side, and they brought that into the MCU. So I think the fight scenes sequences were great. I know that there was some stunt folks behind the scenes as well, um, you know, that that were a part of that and that kind of work with Alakwa, as you know, in 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 those fight scenes and whatnot. I I enjoyed the heck out of them. I like that kind of thing. I mean, you know, just the the suplex. I always love suplexes. <laughs> yeah. Anytime. I mean, you know, it's the one that makes it, it makes the highlight reels, right? It's, it's great in the show, but it's great in the highlight reels too, which is suplexes is a guy through, I think is what the, the pinball machine. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. On the pinball machine. Quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm never going to, I just like anything like that. And I like that it's that sort of like grittier fight style. I think for me, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about what they brought in from the Netflix series into the MCU. I like that too because some of these modern superhero fights, it's everything's just so over choreographed and it's super CGI, right? And this definitely had a more realistic type of tone to it, which I thought really, really packed a punch. Now, Lee, I have heard people say that um, 
you know, Marvel's kind of moving into some of these lesser known superheroes, right? I mean, I think they've kind of retired Captain America a little bit and Iron Man. So what do you think? Are, are we going to continue to see Echo in more shows or possibly even a movie going forward? I mean, I'm hoping so. I think they set the breadcrumbs for it, right? And they're, they're, you know, they're building a lot of this stuff up. If we know, I mean, everything always changes. So it's really hard to pin Marvel down at this point. But if we're going towards Secret Wars, we're going towards the things that they've announced, you know, that means they're going to be tying in sections from the television series um, into the big movie, the big splash movies and the Avengers stuff that's coming up. You know, I think she's a great candidate to be an Avenger, right? I think she's a great candidate to come into these, you know, to these other films. And I think our showing from Native America is going to help that, which is, you know, always the call out to our community is, you know, you got to, it's, it's, the, it's the tune in because otherwise they're not going to get another show, right? Like, so this is, mm-hmm. you know, it's always important that when they're looking at this stuff that, that, that we're there, that we're there supporting um, Alakwa, that we're there supporting, uh, you know, um, all of the actors, uh, all of the creative consultants, all the folks that are a part of this. There's so many Native folks that we have on, you know, on the show today, right? Like that we're a part <laughs> of this work that we have to give them our heart and our spirit. Otherwise, we don't get to see them again. So I'm hoping she shows up. And I think that's kind of our responsibility as viewers to be like, hey, let's make sure she shows up into the next film or next iteration of this. New Marvel television series Echo, streaming now on Hulu Plus and Disney. If you've seen the show, if you've had a chance to watch any of the episodes, or maybe you've seen all five of the episodes, give us a call. Tell us what you think of the show tell us what you think of alaqua cox as maya lopez or any of the other great actors in the film or television show i should say our phone number is open 1-800-996-2848 hank adams was a key figure in the fight for native fishing rights in the 1970s he was a voice for holding the federal government accountable for broken treaties and was instrumental in resolving the 1973 wounded knee occupation We'll learn about the legacy of the Assiniboine civil rights pioneer from those who knew him. That's on the next Native America Calling. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org, who support this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We are discussing the new Marvel television series Echo, including interviews with cast and crew. We also want to hear from you. Do you read comic books and graphic novels? Have you been looking forward to this show? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And a reminder, you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to other types of native programming by downloading the NV1 app to your smart device. Let's hear now from an interview I did with Alakwa Cox. This is her first major acting role and certainly her first series lead role. She is from the Menominee Nation. And for those who don't know, she is also an amputee, and she is deaf. 
so she spoke to us through an interpreter. I asked her about what it's like to star in a show that draws from both contemporary and historical indigenous storylines. Obviously, the representation and the authenticity of it, because they're choosing a person to represent an indigenous character and a deaf person to represent a deaf character. And so the authentic representation is right there. And we don't see that a lot, at least back in the day. Now we're starting to see more of it in Hollywood. And so I'm very proud of that. But even though we still need to work on it more, uh, but I am very excited about the authentic re representation we're all going to see on the screen. And as a representative of Native American people and Native American culture, what is it that you most want to to provide as a message for audiences, both Native and non-Native alike? That's a good question. I will say, when you watch the show, it shows mostly Indigenous culture, of course, but I want people to be able to learn about the history of the ancestors and the Indigenous people. And the Indigenous people you'll be able to see themselves on the screen when they watch that show, this show. So I think it's so important. And I don't feel like we see it often, especially back in the day. But nowadays, we're seeing us more and more on the screen. And I just think it's wonderful. Well, the character of Maya just epitomizes confidence and strength and, and perseverance, uh, an Indigenous woman. But Maya also has uh, a nurturing and a kind aspect as well. And how do you draw from your own life experience when you portray Maya on screen? Oh, it was tough to embody Maya. I did have a difficult time, but I had to help myself by watching some YouTube videos or movies that, you know, have a complicated character in it. And I would study them and I would feel start to feel like I was able to embody Maya until that moment I was able to fully embody Maya. But I'm not like her in real life, obviously. I think that those YouTube videos just helped me become her when I needed to. It was tough to play her emotionally, especially adding ASL on top of it. It was a challenge, but it was fun to be her. You've become a huge celebrity and your career has taken off. And what has that been like? Just so much so soon. It must be really exciting, but also maybe a little bit overwhelming at times. Oh, yeah. Life has just changed so fast. It's been very overwhelming. I remember before I was, you know, I wanted to be a world traveler and I was job hopping. I was collecting money and I would quit and then I would, you know, travel and then I would quit. And so now I have a stable job and, you know, I know what I want to do with my future. And I have a lot of responsibility to advocate for the three underrepresented communities that I am representing. So it's a big change to the, what I was living before this. I know that in some parts of the of the deaf community, deaf people don't consider not being able to hear a disability. In fact, I've also heard them say that it's it's people like me, hearing people who actually have a disability. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, some deaf people don't view themselves as a person with a disability, but of course we have some benefits, you know. We rely mostly on our eyes and we're able to catch a lot of things with our eyes that maybe hearing people won't be able to catch. You know, for example, I think of hearing people, they're not easy, able to catch things with their peripheral eyes as often as we are as a deaf person. So I think it's, I don't view us as a disabled people as well. That is Menominee actress Alakwa Cox, the lead in the new Echo series. 
Let's go ahead and bring Dr. Scott Ketchum into our conversation now. He is the Chickasaw Nation Endowed Chair in Native American Studies for East Central University. Scott, thanks again for joining the show. And I know you read comic books yourself. How do you think Choctaw culture is represented in this new Marvel show? Um, I think they did an excellent job of uh, you know putting that forward and telling that story. Um, but also, you know, they did a wonderful job, of Marvel, of ensuring that that story was accurate by bringing in, you know, our community uh, to make sure that, you know, it, it portrayed Choctaw culture in the right way. Um, but, as, you know, as a comic book person also, you know, going a little bit further with that, you know, it was, you, you know, I go back to X-Men. You, you have some of the early people like John Proudstar, who was um, Thunderbird, and then his brother uh, Warpath, uh, James Proudstar. Um, they were, you know, Cheyenne or Apache, um, and then you know you have some other characters, uh, even um, Maya herself, who started out as Cheyenne. And so I think that you know, as, as Lee was talking about earlier, about this representation and and in the past, Marvel kind of, you know, they had indigenous characters, but those stories weren't really flushed out. Uh, they also became complicated as you had changing writers and people coming along. And so I think um, you know now it's a great opportunity to bring in indigenous writers and letting us write those characters. And so I think they did a really good job of considering that aspect of it and letting those stories come through um, indigenous eyes and then ensuring, you know, approaching the community and ensuring the community's voice was there, uh, giving the community the chance to edit, uh, bringing in the language and, and those kinds of things. Um, but there are even little bitty things that, um, you know, the five, the five um, episodes are all, um, named um, after characters uh, that, you know, embody Echo or Echo's family. Uh, but one of the things that are interesting, like even the name Maya, Maya is actually a Choctaw word. Uh, and so there are a little bit of things that worked out in that representation that, um, you know, that wasn't planned. You know, that, that there were things that are changed to make it Choctaw, but even that name um, becoming, you know, it's a verb in, in the language, but uh, that also itself, you know, um, keeping that continuity of all the names uh, being Choctaw mm -hmm. names of the women. Scott, let's talk a little bit more about that history and that connection with the various women, because the series draws from Maya Lopez's family tree, starting with the first Choctaw. Tell us about that story, that history, and how well you think it was handled on screen. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, interestingly is, you know, the, the, the show does an excellent job of kind of being an introduction primer to our, to our culture. And so, you know, the opening scene with uh, Chapa you know, being a Chapa, being the first Choctaw, uh, you, you know, that's one of our, our origin stories, which is kind of us emerging from a cave, from the mound. Um, and so they took that into consideration and, and you know, portraying that. Uh, and then even them coming out of that, come in, in, you know, to the surface world, uh, us being clay people, and then the cracking of that, and then, you know, from, from the sun, uh, which, you know, likely is probably really tied to the importance of, um, the clay pots and, and the importance of place and agricultural development uh, that, you know, the stories probably represent um, to some degree for our people. Uh, you know, it was really well, I, I felt like it was really well done. Um, they did a good job of also not overly explaining those things. I think sometimes some of these shows and some of the, uh, and, and some of the problems is they give so much explanation that, um, you know, you, it kind of loses a little bit that is there, but through that, you know, through that, that story, I thought it was handled really well. And at the same time, though, um, you know, there's aspects of it that we may not be able to share. And so I think it did a really good job of, of putting it out there. 
Now, one thing that's interesting is now our origin story is out there next to, say, you know, the beginnings of other, you know, other Marvel um, places like Wakanda and other cultural, um, you know, connected places. And so I think there's, you know, there, there's this kind of this distinction where this is now in the Marvel world, but this is also, you know, a, a, you know, intimately tied to our culture and our identity. And so I think that's why it was important to bring in um, voices from our community to make sure that telling was done in such a way um, that was really, you know, important. But you move on to, you know, like Lowak's story, uh, which means fire in Choctaw, um, the whole scene of stickball. Um, you know, the choreographed fight scenes were excellent. You know, the, the fight scenes were excellent because, you know, they let them go and it was just like one take. And I think one interesting thing about like the stickball scenes is that, you know, having people out there um, acting like they're playing stickball, by watching that scene, you can tell that they brought in stickball players uh, just because it's <laughs> The, the way it looked, you know, it, it looked, you know yeah. that's something you could just throw in there. And so, of course, there are probably some of the scenes that were stunt choreographed, but, you know, that that's one of the scenes that I really noticed that was excellent. Or in the Tukolo story, where she's out there with her father, um, she throws a rabbit stick, a chukfi, um, a stick. And I think, you know, little bitty things like that were really um, important that brought in so many symbols from our community. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen enough stickball games myself to know that uh, they definitely captured the, the the energy and a little bit of that brutality that goes into that game. Sydney Freeland is a well-known native filmmaker and producer. She's the executive producer on Echo. I had a chance to talk with her, and she told me the series is a chance to introduce characters and culture that a lot of people haven't been able to see until now. I'm incredibly excited for um, audiences to meet Maya Lopez, and um, you know I think I think we're going to get a chance to see a, a different side and a different corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But we're also going to see um, uh, uh, and get to experience the Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma um, on on a much bigger scope and scale than we've previously had the opportunity to do. What do you think is most significant about having Alakwa being the star of the Echo series? Well, I have to say, Alakwa just made my job so much easier. You know, uh, she just has this this natural ability, uh, this inherent charisma, uh, but also this tough uh, this tough side to her. Uh, I think I think in no large part due to her, you know, growing up on a reservation. She's a res kid. You know, she's she's got a little rough around the edges, uh, sort of. Uh, part of her, uh, which is also which is also what the character is. So I think Alaka was able to draw a lot from her own personal experiences in in the creation of this character. Um, and then I think for just uh, from from my standpoint, it was all about you know just trying to uh, build as authentic a community as possible. And that meant you know casting indigenous uh, actors to play uh, her family member. And you know it was important for me to have people that that knew the community and, and had those experiences and, and, you know, just to try to, and, and all of that to hopefully tell as authentic a story as possible. Sydney, I've been a fan of your work since Drunk Town's Finest in 2014. That was a grassroots independent film. And, and now your career just continues to evolve. And how challenging has that transition been to doing grassroots independent work to now these big mainstream commercial TV series? Oh man, you know, I think uh, um, you know it's it's interesting because they're sort of the same but different, right? Like with something like 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 Drunk Town, uh, it was such a challenge to get made, uh, but the process of making it actually helped uh, inform uh, inform myself uh, f- further down the line, right? So we don't 
we only had $150,000 in 15 days to shoot the film. Um, and so because you're moving at such a uh, sort of a, a speed of light schedule, you have to you have to be creative. You have to think on your feet. You have to uh, adapt uh, in the moment, you know. Um, and then you know you think you get to like, oh, this is Marvel, and you have unlimited resources and unlimited time and unlimited sort of manpower. But that's that's not the case, you know. There's still only so many hours in the day. Uh, there's still only um, uh, so many minutes of of, of uh, sunset. Uh, you know, and and you still have to uh, make your day, get your shots and get your performances. And so it actually all of those sort of like indie film, short film, grassroots, non-union shoots that I had worked on actually really helped to inform uh, just me personally and uh, how we shot the, the film. I thought it was interesting that uh, the filming it represents or that's set in uh, this town in Oklahoma, but most of the filming was actually done in Atlanta, Georgia. And was that challenging at all, filming scenes there in Georgia that were representative of Oklahoma? Um, yes and no, right? I think we had we had a little bit of a stroke of good luck. You know, like there's, you know, the Choctaw Nation traditionally from uh, the southeast portion of, of the United States. And so so for some of our pre uh pre-european contact pre-trail of, of tears storylines we were able to actually shoot in in some of the actual locations uh in in physical geography of where the the choctaw people were but the choctaw nation of oklahoma in its physical geography there's you know georgia and oklahoma can be very different landscapes but there was enough overlap that i i hope we were able to to do uh, the southeast portion of Oklahoma justice, and hopefully, hopefully, people won't be able to see where Oklahoma ends and Georgia begins. That's Echo executive producer Sydney Freeland. Let's hear now from Terry Billy. She is an assistant director of the Choctaw School of Language, and she worked as a translator and a consultant on the Echo series. And Terry, Welcome to the show. Thank you again for joining us. And what's been the response from the Choctaw Nation to the Echo character? Are they pleased with how she's portrayed on screen? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's just been great interest. And I think people have been having watch parties and watching them together. And I've seen lots of uh, comments on Facebook. And, you know, people have noticed relatives and in the stickball scenes in different parts. And so, there's been lots of sharing, lots of conversation going on. So there's huge, a huge excitement absolutely going on within the Choctaw Nation over this series. And what has been the process like working on the language for the show? Well, that's been very uh, rewarding. Lots of lots of uh, tedious work. And, we, you know, we had to go through, of course, we're, you know, we're in, we had to translate lines for those actors and actresses. And then also we've stepped into the dubbing project and so uh lots of translating the entire uh, episode each one of them and then uh now we're moving into the uh the dubbing series uh, the dubbing we've been doing the dubbing and now subtitling is what we're uh, very hard at work at right now but uh uh it, i think probably the most challenging is that uh We've had uh, we have a lot of we we're in one of those languages that's in uh, crisis mode. You know we have um, a small number of speakers left. So we, as it turned out, had an apprentice program going on with our our Choctaw Nation language department, and so we were able to utilize the youth that are involved in our program, and uh, send that out to people that we knew that were 
pretty good speakers, or at least they had heard the sound. They were familiar with the structure. So it was very rewarding to be able to work with a group of young people, and they performed very well. Just I'm just thrilled with their performance uh, that we'll be hearing later on as, as more of that is released. Our guests on the show today are Terry Billy, who is a Choctaw School of Language director and a consultant on ECHO. We've also got Dr. Scott Ketchum on the show, Chickasaw Nation Endowed Chair of Native American Studies at East Central University. And we also have Indigenerd Dr. Lee Francis IV. They are all joining us and sharing different aspects of the new ECHO series, both in terms of what it means as a pop culture phenomenon, but also the cultural and language and historical context and what it means to the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and other Native people as well. Share your thoughts. Let us know what you think of the Echo Series, if you've had a chance to see it yet, or if you're waiting or hoping to see it soon. Let us know what excites you most about this new series featuring the uh, newcomer to the Hollywood scene, Alakwa Cox. Phone number to the studio, 1-800-996-2848. Support by the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Have you or someone you know experienced discrimination in USDA lending programs before January 1st, 2021? The USDA Discrimination Financial Assistance Program, DFAP, is a limited one-time program to provide financial support to ranchers, farmers, and forest landowners discriminated against by USDA lending programs. Interested producers must apply by January 13th. More info and application assistance at IndianAg.org. You're listening to Native America Calling, and there is still time to join this conversation about the new television series, Echo. Share your thoughts by calling 1-800-996-2848. I think many of us know Devery Jacobs from her iconic role as Elora in Reservation Dogs. She is Mohawk First Nations, and she also has a role in the Echo series. She plays Bonnie. And Chesky Spencer is another Native actor who is Lakota, Nez Perce, Cherokee, Muscogee, who plays Henry in Echo. And he played another character in Marvel's Jessica Jones series. I first wanted to know from Devery what she brought from previous roles that helped her give life to her Echo character, Bonnie. Anytime I do a role that like a little piece of that character kind of stays with me. And so in that sense, I think there's been like an accumulation of all of the different characters who I've played. This one was definitely different, though, especially um, with Bonnie being a coda, a child of deaf adults and and someone who is incredibly close with Maya, um, so close that they're basically sisters. And so um, through the series, I think what was the most challenging, but was really exciting was being able to learn American sign language, uh, and to be able to connect with, with Alakwa, who is just like so badass and incredible, um, and to be able to connect with her and, and have that history be felt between those characters. How are you able to incorporate your own native culture in your own ideas and your beliefs into the characters you play. You're, you're Mohawk, of course, and, and you're representing uh, somebody from an Oklahoma tribe. There must be a challenge there. There's definitely a challenge. I think there's always a sense of respect that we want to, as actors, when we're going into other communities and playing different nations or tribes. Uh, I am Ganyat Gahaga, I'm Mohawk, and I think that, like, 
that there's a collective experience where you can like understand the basics of of that experience of what it means to be from a, a marginalized people. Um, but then specifically when preparing to play Bonnie and to play somebody who is Choctaw, I ended up going to Durant, Oklahoma at the Choctaw Cultural Center where they were super welcoming and, and it was such a beautiful facility. I had a chance to learn about Choctaw culture and history and learn some of the language. Um, and so that when we went over to Georgia to film, um, that I that we were able to kind of pretend that it was the Choctaw Nation as as we were filming uh, in that state. Um, but knowing the history of the Trail of Tears and that it actually kind of came from uh, Georgia kind of felt like a like a homecoming for a lot of those nations. Well, I thought it was interesting because so many Southeast tribes have roots in that part of the country. So there, that was applicable. And Cheske, for you, it, it must have not been quite as much of a stretch because you've got a lot of Southeastern blood. Uh, no, it's always it's always a challenge. <laughs> it's never easy. No, I never know. Every role I play, it's never easy. It's always a challenge, which, you know, go back to your question was that uh, every, I think every role in my journey as an actor prepares me for the role that I'm going to play next. And like, I've always, when I was a kid, I knew this was going to be a craft and you're never going to get this. Like I knew from very early on from my acting coaches that I'm never going to be as good as I want to be or what I think I can. You're just constantly working at it, constantly working at it. And you apply that work to every character. Same with, with Henry. You know, I know I'm not going to be perfect at it, but it's the it's striving to be perfect. And that's where you learn your craft. I have failed so many times in character work, but yet it opens another door to something else. So for me as an actor, I just keep myself as fluid as I possibly can. And representation, uh, I, I you know, being a Native American actor, I think we both had experiences where we have to learn different languages on top of the dialogue we're playing. So when you come to AS, ASL, it was different, but it's the same thing I've learned before. I got to handle two different languages. And there's an honor in that and also to respect that. But, you know, it's hard work. You know, when people come up about acting, this is all glam. But when you get right down to it, it's hard work to do this. It's really hard work. There's a viral video out this week in which Devery is asked to respond to a question about whether both Maya Lopez and Kahori need to exist. And I want to go back to Lee Francis for this, because Lee, first off, tell us who exactly is Kahori and maybe expound on whether there's room in the world for two native superheroes. Oh, that's even more exciting. So Kahori is the uh, Mohawk character um, that exists in the animated series, the What If series um, that they also just released within this last month. Um, I think it was like right around Christmas time. It was right, right in the late December um, and caused a great stir. Debbie Jacobs plays the voice uh, of the character, um, did some great work, um, you know, with Haudenosaunee folks up in that direction to bring to light the character, gains their powers from the Tesseract for those from the original Marvel stuff with Captain America. Uh, and it's a what if the Tesseract had landed um, in, in territory. In, in sovereign territory instead, and this character gains this incredible power. I truly believe that I would love, to your other question of seeing these characters in the MCU, in the movies, and more of this stuff, it opens so many doors. And having two Native women characters aligning ourselves back to our matriarchal, matrilineal societies of, like, these are our two superheroes. These are the representations for us. Um, one that is absolutely 
was sort of the embodiment of the superhero and one that is that embodiment of striving to be a superhero, you know, Kahori and then Echo, right? I think they're mm-hmm. such a great counterpoint to each other. I mean, if they had a spinoff, would be incredible uh, for them to, to, to be in that same world. And now that we know we're playing in, these, in, this, in this multiverse, um, you know, in, in the MCU, I think it's so, uh, such an incredible opportunity to continue to have our voices present and to continue to tell these amazing stories of all our communities from coast to coast. Well, the possibilities here are just endless, and it's just fascinating to consider all of the possible plot lines and stories that, that could evolve from Echo and some of these other related series. And, Terry, I want to go back to you now and talk more uh, about the Choctaw language and, and your work and, and working with the Echo producers. So are, are there what have been some of your most memorable moments just working on the series? And are there any details that Choctaw listeners should be especially mindful of when watching the show? Well, first of all, I would just kind of add to what the others have just said that even though it's Choctaw, we still have that community feeling, even though I may know not, I may not know very much of another native culture. There are so many things in, in so many ways that we're still alike. And I think I was really touched several times throughout the series. One where the little girl says, uh, we're cousins, and she says, says, no, we're sisters. And, you know, that just very much reflects Native American culture. I thought that was just so so precious because that that is who we are as Native people. You know, we don't want cousins that's too far removed. You're my brother. You're my sister, you know. So that was yeah. one of those of those moments, and just throughout it, of course, seeing the Bosto scene with the stickball players was so moving just just brought me to tears. It was quite emotional that that really that Marvel took the time to create such a beautiful village, and what all they put into it was just it, it was just staggering and overwhelming at times but uh, one of the things that was also cute and amusing was that, uh, of course, the stickball players, you know, they're they're filming and they're saying stop, you know, and go back and do this over, stop. Well, you know, you can't. It, it's like it's like you're food, dealing with uh, traditional food, and they say you got to look at it, but you can't eat it, and then you know you're just desperate <laughs> to eat it. And so that's the way the stickball players were. They said that at the at the last uh, after the final uh, scene. The final shot, they just went into an all-out game. And then um, Pashawn Bread had shared with me the same thing happened during the filming of the powwow scene, that, you know, it stopped. Here's the grand entry. It will stop. And then finally, at daybreak, they said it was so beautiful. The sunlight, was, uh, the sunrise was coming up. And when that last shot was seen, they just went into a full-fledged powwow. <laughs> so <laughs> there were some things that people didn't get to see, but – because that's who we are. We understand ourselves, and we, you know, we're just we're we're just whole when we're doing those things. So, uh, yeah, there were a number of those, and I I think another touching uh, um, thing that I felt was when our, our native hymns that we still sing that came on at the end of one of the episodes, and uh, just really touched my heart. So, it was thoroughly um, enjoyable exciting overwhelming at times but i i just can't say enough about what marvel did to sit down at the table invited us to the table all the head writers you know wanted to listen and and see what our thoughts were see what our opinions were there were changes made here and there 
and very respectful to things that we didn't want to put out there. You know, we, there's just some things that we stay that stays within the culture. So overall, um, it was just amazing, amazing. Thank you, Terry. Scott, how about you? What have been some of your most or, or favorite moments from the series? And I'm also interested in just learning a little bit more about some of the Choctaw symbols that were used. You talked a little bit earlier about the woodpecker, but what are some other symbols? Yeah, well, um, you know, when when she gets her superhero regalia there, you know, at the end, um, you know, the, the, even the intricacy on that, you know, you've got the, uh, you know, the what they call the uh, rattlesnake disc, um, which is the hand with the two rattlesnakes around it with the eye. Um, you know, you have the uh, diamonds from the rattlesnake on her on there, as well as other things that you will find kind of on our old sashes that are symbols um, in some of the old uh, regalia for Choctaw people, and so you know, just little fine things like that that were incorporated into into that. Or even that, you know, uh, as as they mentioned earlier that it was filmed in Georgia, um, the, the posters that are put up behind them in several of the scenes are actually, you know, really uh, community-related posters. Um, I noticed one was advertising youth stickball that happens to be in the background in one scene. Um, and there's, I think, another, you know, poster uh, talking about, I think, even our um, the Choctaw powwow. And so, you know, there's a lot of little things like that that were very much there. But, you know, it's the same thing as, you know, what is Choctaw is family, um, as Terry was saying. And so, uh, you know, even little things, um, when she goes to uh, New York and, and um, Fisk tells her that they're family, she calls him uncle, which is, you know, very much, you know, that's very uh, much in line with the way we would address, um, you know, our, our, our uh, older cousins or something. We looked at them as uncles and aunties. As, instead of just cousins, you know, that's very much uh, family. And so those little things like that, they were all incorporated to the film. Um, you know, as you were asked earlier, what, what would you consider her? And, um, you know, her journey is very much an anti-hero, but she's a cultural hero. And so cultural heroes don't always have to be perfect. You know, sometimes they're tricksters. They have all kinds of different roles. Uh, and I think that that was there. And I don't want to not leave out Biscuit. I think Biscuit was a, his character very <laughs> much embodied a lot of, a lot of us, you know, uh, trying yeah. to tell the, his, uh, you know, his PlayStation to fix his uh, Pokney's um, uh, car. I think that's a that's a pretty uh, Oklahoma thing to happen to somebody. You know, pretty Indian <laughs> reservation thing to happen. So, and had to get rid of that PlayStation. So, I think even things, little things like that, were um, really well done. Um, well, let's talk more about you know just that that Oklahoma vibe because, of course, many of these actors are, are not Choctaw. They're not from even Oklahoma. Some of them are from Canada and. How well do you think some of those actors, those non-Choctaw actors, were able to just capture what it means to be Choctaw, what it means to be native in Oklahoma today? I thought they did a really good job. Um, you know, they, uh, it, it was obvious that, you know, they had having the people around and the insight. But, I mean, little things like the use of the language and, and the way they did. Um, you can even notice even the difference of, of when the when the family comes in to um, Scully, you know, Scully, which means money in Choctaw, you know, and working at a pawn shop. Uh, my grandmother, my Pulteney, worked at a pawn shop in Ardmore. And so, uh, you know, a lot of those little things like that were, were, you know, were very much seen, you know, to be very, you know, felt very family-oriented. But when you have that family coming in there, the, the lady and the man trying to buy the, the different goods and everything, and the way they say, Yako Key or whatever, you know, that's, even little distinctions like that where you know people who are from our community versus people who come from the outside that come in um, little you know even little distinctions like that that happen in the film were were, were really well written 
and you know took into consideration um, what you know the way we you know what, what goes on here. Uh, it, it's you know southeast Oklahoma is very much it's, it's at the end of that deciduous forest that Georgia lies in, and so you know part of our community does resemble a lot of that of that area. So. Um, you know, staying in Georgia, there was a lot of places that reflected um, where, you know, that, that connection. But even going into Alabama so that, you know, um, the, the Moundville stuff on, on her, on her um, regalia, you know, that Moundville and, and that Alabama scene, you know, that may be the earlier proto-roots of our people. And so um, in terms of where we, where we began, um, what we know at Choctaw people now. So there was all those connections there that, you know, tell a lot of our story uh, and her being nomadic. Us as Oklahoma, the Trail of Tears, um, and all of that that brought us here. You know, you see that same kind of journey in her life of, of you know, being away from home and, and, and coming back home and, and realizing that home is family. I think all those things really reflected Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Terry, back to you now. Echo five episodes, and of course, probably the hope is that there will be another season, more episodes in the future. And if that happens, are you up for continuing in your role as a language consultant? Uh, yes and no. Yes, I would be, but I think it's time to train some new people. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think this and, and, series you know, will be a, a, an opportunity to, to to inspire more people to learn the language and and, and carry on your legacy and those of others who, who teach the language? I, I absolutely hope so, and I believe that it has and that it will, absolutely. And and I think it was just so much fun working uh, as a language coach coach as well. And, and you know, we've got second language speakers. And I, I think what I want to say to people is that, you know, every single word may not sound like a fluent speaker, but then that's where we have to be forgiving because if we're losing if we're losing our language, whatever avenue it comes out in, we need to applaud it, embrace it, and forgive those little bitty things that may not be just right on, but at least it's out there and we're growing and we're continuing to move forward in regaining and recapturing and revitalizing our language. And with that, we have now reached the end of our hour. Big thanks to our three guests today. Dr. Lee Francis IV, Dr. Scott Ketchum, and Terry Billy. Join us again on Monday as we take a look back at the life and activism of Hank Adams, who worked on Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign, Tribal Fishing Rights, and much more. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Quantic Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a relaxing weekend. I'm Sean Spruce. Skuktash, support by Ramona Farms. For over 40 years, Ramona's American Indian Foods has revived tepary beans, panoli, traditional wheat flours, and more. Delivery for your holiday gatherings, available on orders placed at store.ramonafarms.com. Fry bread, that's the message. Support by Val's Fry Bread, providing her famous fry bread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at valsfrybread.com. Fry bread that will take you home, available wherever you live. Hey, hey. 
Happy New Year. Look at every Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.